0: Hello, this is Curtis Hill for the Unity Project, uh, and joining me is my great friend from San Francisco, Kevin McGarry. Um, yes, Kevin McGarry has an organization, uh, the, uh, Every Black Life Matters. Every Black Life Matters. That's right. And he's also the author of a book uh, that I would strongly encourage, Woked Up, uh, which has a, a historical perspective of uh, uh, the, the civil rights era. Uh, and... Uh, very interesting book i've got a copy myself so kevin thank you for joining us today thank you and uh you're at amerifest
1: yes tell me why
0: you're at amerifest and uh, what you hope to gain here
1: i was a uh so i was a speaker on a pastor's panel they had and uh so we were talking about just in general social justice versus biblical justice and how to really make sense of what's happening with clergy right now in relation to our woke uh demonic culture and so we, we we had a bit of conversation about that on a panel discussion so i'm here for that number one but number two there's a lot of freedom loving americans and that's refreshing to see uh when you come out to a conference like this i mean in other words it's anti -anti anti-woke anti-marxist uh anti-socialist uh that's a rare environment unfortunately it used to be just basic you know you run into Large conferences and large, large groups of people where everybody were just freedom-loving Americans, but for some reason, Curtis, we've, we've, um, there's a lot of America, a lot of people in America have really uh, bought into the idea that big government is a good thing, uh, that we actually need big government to take care of the poor, uh, that big government uh, in school, in, in work, in, um, in, in, in economics it works out and and really we're seeing that big government is failing us look at our schools look at our work a lot of people are you know the uh, uh, the the actual employment rate is really pretty brutal right now
0: let me ask you this how can pastors have anything other than a biblical worldview uh... what are you seeing out there from the church community that's that's failing or lacking or is really allowing our, our communities to uh, disintegrate. I mean, the family structure has suffered for decades. Yeah. Uh, fathers have uh, have just been uh, nowhere to be found in many instances. Yeah. What is the church What is the church doing? How are they justifying a non-biblical view?
1: Well, I, so here's the thing. So uh, I really believe that the church is suffering, and we have so many people preaching a non-biblical point of view because... Uh, in our seminaries these days, they've, they've adopted critical race theory, liberation theology, black liberation theology, James Cone's work. Uh, they've adopted these other gospels that Paul defines in Galatians 1 eight and 1 9. Uh And what Apostle Paul said is, look, if you, if, even if an angel from heaven comes and gives you one iota of a different gospel than what we have preached, then they are cursed.
0: Are they and, always are they always spelled out? I mean, is, is, is it always CRT? Uh, is it always so obvious and so clear? No, or not. are some of these doctrines uh, in between the lines and, and hidden from, from uh, yeah. automatic view?
1: Yeah, that's great. That's uh, I'm glad you bring that out because the subtleties are, here, are there, right? Uh, they're not always spelled out like, hey, this is an aspect of critical race theory. Um, what you see is uh, the adoption of what, what they call syncretizing. They syncretize a little bit of the gospel, a little bit of this philosophy with the gospel and they syncretize and they it and mix, mis- mix it up. And so uh, it's not always obvious to them or to the parishioners that are listening to it. It sounds reasonable, it sounds logical, but it's not biblical. Um, and uh, so uh, the same thing with uh, James Cone's Black Liberation Theology, uh, it seems reasonable that uh, you know some of his primary points, which are you know blacks need uh, an activist type of a gospel to really kind of complete the, the 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 gospel of Jesus. So they need a social activism component to it. And so a, a lot of pastors will get up there and say, look, you know, uh, us believing and doing what we're doing and being like Jesus is all good, but it's no good if you don't get out there and do the works. We got to make sure we become activists and this and that. So it, it sort of syncretizes, though, James Cone's work into the purity of our gospel message, and it loses its power.
0: So we have a different we have a different gospel for us than, than other people have. There's a there's a separate gospel for the black yes. community. That's that's what's being suggested.
1: That's uh, James Cone. If you read the, if you if your listeners and I know you're familiar, but uh, so black liberation theology or liberation theology generally is is adapted uh, from a South American Marxist. Uh, mindset That's where it came from. So, um, and then James Cone took the South American Marxism and adapted it into uh, what I like to call a black superiority uh, or a um, uh, black supremacist kind of a mindset. It, they, he adapted it into that to where a lot of black pastors and a lot of blacks now believe that um, in order for us to see real justice, we need reparations, we need, uh, you know, whites to really, you know, sort of bow and kowtow to, to blacks, to, to uh, They get their salvation kind of coming to us and, you know, and, and, and pro- providing some kind of penance, right, for what they've done. Uh, this is not, this is completely antithetical to the gospel. Uh, we have one Lord and Savior and he paid the price one time on the cross for all. And uh, so these are the types of things though that we're having to fight. But when you have people in seminaries learning this and then they go and get a church uh, and then they start preaching this way, then we see a whole, for lack of a better term, bastardization of the gospel message. How, bad,
0: how bad is the cultural problem in America? How, how significant is this cultural rift that we have right now? I mean, there, there have been times throughout history where there have been you know i think back to the, the, the late 1960s early 70s the hippie culture yeah uh or uh, we, and we had uh, movements such as the black panther movement yeah uh, there's there's been different little pockets of time how significant is what's going on now from a cultural standpoint and where does it take us going forward
1: it's, uh, it's, it's very significant because what we have right now is really not a socialist type of a mindset. We have more of a Marxist, communist mindset where um, it's becoming more and more totalitarian. We've seen the, um, the sort of melding of big government, big tech, big education, big media all in and one. And so when that's happening there and we have then these, these messages coming from the pulpit that sort of promote or endorse that what's happening with government right now—it's um, really, really significant because what happens is, is individuals start to lose their uh, God-given natural uh, rights, so to speak, like the rights of just free speech. That's pretty much gone with with this tech, these tech giants censoring, doxing, canceling these types of things. Uh, we see a direct assault on the Second Amendment. We see the Fourth Amendment under that. All of the Bill of Rights, quite honestly, are uh, under attack right now. But we don't see a pushback from leaders or well-known pastors. We see more of uh, an endorsement of what's going on with our government um, instead of uh, the church really saying, no, look, you're messing with our religious rights or religious freedoms, Mm -hmm. our free speech. Uh, We're going to push you on this. There's an adoption of it. So so it's very, very significant. Right now, I think America is in the most precarious position it's it's been in in our our history, other than the Civil War, but after, you know, post-Reconstruction.
0: Well, let's add to that precarious position and talk about reparations. Mm. Uh, Reparations has been a, uh, certainly a word that's been thrown about for decades. Um, Currently, the state of California is giving consideration to adopting reparations. They have a task force that uh, you were very aware of that's generating information and potential recommendations on how to apply reparations to blacks who qualify yeah. in the state of California. Uh, and the numbers that uh, have been banded about uh, $230,000 per black man, woman, and child. Uh, some have said that's not enough. Some say too much. What are your general thoughts to reparations? Do, do I mean, clearly, there's, there's no issue that um, that the history in America on race is uh, pretty nasty. Yeah. There's some, there's some, there's some things that occurred that if we could make payment for, would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, typically, it would make more sense if it was a direct payment from the oppressor to the oppressed, ver- as opposed to multi-generational gaps. Right. So, I find it very difficult to understand or appreciate how we make those indirect gaps connect. Um, have you got some thoughts on how reparations, uh, on whether a reparations is an appropriate consideration? If it's an appropriate consideration, how should it be considered and uh, how that would work?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of, uh, you know, we have states like New York and California that are at first. They're spearheading it because they want all the other smaller states to join in after they've tested it. Uh, it's really insidious, though, when you think about these were not your slave states, right? Uh, there were no slaves in California. California was... Uh, so, um, so that's the first part of it. It's like, well, how do you claim any kind of reparations? You weren't... You know, you, California wasn't even a part of that. But, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to um, basically level up certain races because of what did happen, Right. And so, in California, for instance, they're uh, they're considering up to eight hundred thousand dollars because that's the average price of a home in California. Um, but here's here's the here's the problem with it: reparations should never be generalized for the general population to pay uh, for harms. The harms are usually closely associated, like you said, with the with the parties or the individuals or the factions that actually did the harms. And ideally, if that faction is still around and if the people in that faction who actually perpetrated the harms uh... can be held accountable now we know that nobody's around from the eighteen hundreds so that's that, that that's part out, of it can. Be. but the faction is still around now what's interesting about these reparations conversations is we never hear about the faction that actually did the harms, the faction that actually created slavery and by faction, and like you're
0: talking about uh, affiliates associations the uh,
1: the actual group of people and in this case it would be a particular party um, you know, as many reparations conversations that we hear, as many systemic racism claims we hear, as a matter of fact, I've read Kendi's book, Cover to Cover, and Robin DiAngelo, Kendi is How to Be an Anti-Racist, Robin D'Angelo is White Fragility. They talk a lot about systemic racism and slavery, but they never ever mention the particular people, the group of people that literally enslaved. And that's because it was a particular party That particular party, they're affiliated with, so they never mention it. But yet they say, we need accurate history. I'm like, well, how's that? Why can't you mention the party that actually did it? So so my problem with, with reparations is, if you are going to have a conversation sincerely, that particular party is still around today. You can say, look, it was your party that did it. Granted, none of you did it because, you know. But your party did it, and and, and the party apparatus did it, and the foundations of the party did it. So if we're going to have a conversation about reparations, we must include your party. Can your party at least come to the table, match, meet, uh, partially match what these states are considering uh, to see if we can, uh, you know, to make sure that we, we have this conversation about reparations once and for all, and that all the parties that were involved are held accountable. But we don't hear from that party, and we not only that, but we don't hear the people that belong to that party point to that party and say, "This is the party that did it." Unfortunately, but that's part of our history. They don't, they don't want any part of it, and so that's the that's the other part of it. The last part of it, I would say, is we had the Black Wall Street in Tulsa that was completely destroyed, burned from top to bottom. Now, if there is a sincere consideration for reparations, I think the people in Tulsa, those families, are still there—two hundred black families that were. You know, due to get legacy assets from their uh, from the businesses that were destroyed. Um, that should be that particular city, the city of Tulsa, and the taxpayers in should bear some responsibility. If we're going to have a reparations conversation uh, on that, even though that was multi generational as well, so it gets really messy uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about multi gener. It's been multi generation since this happened. Yeah, who gets um,
0: it, and how do you and how do you decide? How do
1: you decide that? But if you are going to have the conversation, you should include the only the parties or the the particular entity that actually did the harms. It's, it shouldn't be generalized to every U.S. taxpayer. And, that's and, ridiculous. And
0: are we talking about reparations for past ills? What about the, the what about the racism that happens tomorrow?
1: Yeah, right.
0: I mean, where does where does this where does where this does it stop?
1: Yeah, that's the other part of it. Is if we Start this, then who knows? We do something tomorrow, and then another 20, 30 years, they say, "Well, look, because you did that, we've got bad water in Flint, for instance, yes. right?" My my parents both died of cancer. They were Flint residents. We had bad water for these decades. We want reparations, right? So where does it really? Well, do you and, who,
0: and who qualifies? I mean, and who I mean qualifies? how do you how do you determine who's black enough? Right? Is it by race? Is it by color, skin color? Right. Is it about DNA? Uh, you know, I know some folks who are uh, even members of my family, who are uh, part of my black family, but you don't look at them and see anything discernibly black. Yes. Yes. So, you know, there's all sorts of issues and concerns that would need to be flushed out. Right. Hopefully, the state of California will come to its senses and realize that this is a totally unworkable solution. Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, I appreciate your time today. Thanks Thank for stopping you for by me. and having a conversation good, with us. And uh, We'll stick together and do
1: some more together. I appreciate it. God bless you, you. Thank you.
0: From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the Donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.